pray. God of good news, we ask that you would take us to Nazareth, that we would listen for the words we need to hear, that you would instill us the words we need to preach, that the words of all our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer, and let the people say, I may try sitting as Jesus preached sitting, as it says in the scripture. We'll see how this goes. But just to remind you, this is going to be a little bit of an interactive sermon, and you have in front of you some questions to think about. And I would love to hear some responses a little later in the sermon. If you're scared by the idea of an interactive sermon, that's okay. Uh, You don't have to participate. In fact, we'll only have time for a few uh, voices to hear, but part of preaching is conversational. And since this is a passage about preaching... We're going to talk about it a little bit today. So the questions are, two are internal questions. What do you need from a sermon? And how do you know if you received it? And the two others are giving questions. What sermon does God need you to preach, you individually? And what would that central message be? And to whom and how will you preach it? Or perhaps you already are preaching it. I realize you may have come here thinking you were only going to receive a sermon, and so the thought that you might have one to deliver, I hope you'll ponder. Before we have this conversation, though, I want to just dig into the story a little bit and unpack it. This is the first record we have of Jesus preaching. It's often thought of as his inaugural sermon. And to add to the pressure of this first sermon, he's preaching it in his hometown, in his home temple. So the expectations are probably pretty high and also a little nerve-wracking for the preacher himself. And I imagine in the temple that day, they were fairly excited about this. There was probably a buzz going on in Nazareth on that temple day. They remembered him probably as a boy, as a teenager growing up in their midst. They probably remembered his precociousness. We talked about that a few weeks ago. They remembered that time he got lost in Jerusalem at Passover in the temple, and they went a whole day's travel and couldn't find him, found him back studying with the rabbi, saying, this is where I belong. Why did you wonder where I was? They probably remember things like, I don't know, maybe he wasn't so good at carpentry. Maybe he didn't pick up his dad's trade so easily. Or that his head always seemed to be off in the clouds, thinking big thoughts out in prayer and isolation, that he was a a bit of a daydreamer. Whatever they remembered about them, about him as a boy, they now have sensed that he has gone off and perhaps come back. They've heard a little bit about what he's been doing in the world around. And I imagine they're wondering if some great things are going to happen. My guess is that they're projecting, as we might say today, some of their hopes and fears on the preacher. There might be hopes for this new generation to take over where we left off or to tackle the things we haven't been able to do. Or they're hoping that this new generation will keep our traditions solid and alive. They might have some fears that they won't do that well. Or they might get harmed in the process. Or Perhaps he's in some fears, they're going to change things up too much. We won't recognize temple and worship the way it used to be. They're going to try to get us to sit in a circle or something or have sermons where we talk to one another. (laughs) I imagine there were some people who were also hopeful that he might just settle down and become our local rabbi. You know, he, he knows us so well. It would be so easy for him to tend to our needs and be here among us. 
And yet, as we heard last week in a lovely sermon, which if you haven't read, read yet, I hope you will, about how he was part of a bigger movement. He had bigger arenas to go on, a bigger platform to preach in. In fact, so big that 5,500 miles away from Nazareth here in Brookline and 2,000 years later, we're still a part of that movement. Some things to notice about his preaching is he chooses a scripture text as his launch pad, as we try to do every week when we get up here to preach. And it's important to note the scripture passage that he preaches on. Perhaps it was the assigned scripture for the day, just as Luke 4 is our assigned scripture for today and next week. But the passage he reads is the 61st chapter of the book of Isaiah. And as he reads it in the version he has, in the English translation we have before us, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stops there. The next line says, a day of vengeance. He doesn't read that part. But I want to share with you a little bit just what the rest of Isaiah 61 says. You may even want to close your eyes and let it cascade over you a little bit. Isaiah 61 goes on to say, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards. Does that sound familiar? And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion... And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. These are words of comfort, words of promise to a beleaguered people, to hard-working people up in the countryside of Galilee. For us to imagine what this might sound like today, imagine if we read a lyric poem in worship today that said something like this. It would predict that a day would happen when every person in the country would have health care provided free and at no cost to them. When every unemployed person would find meaningful and fulfilling work. When every opioid addict or any other addict for that matter would recover from their addiction. And where every broken down urban housing project would get an extreme makeover as well as the poor, run-down shacks out in the country, such that every hovel would shine and gleam like a luxury apartment with a great view. How would that sound as a text to preach on? You see, it's embedded in this idea that's told in the Torah that every 50 years there should be a year of jubilee, a year of release. And what this meant was the fields would lie fallow, you wouldn't plant anything, all your debts would be canceled, any indentured servants would be set free. Any ancestral lands that you had to give up in order to get some money would be restored to their original family. Imagine if we did that in this country. They, they, they did it, you see, as a way to remember their exodus, how God had saved them from their slavery in Egypt. It was a way to remember how good God is to us. Therefore, we should be good to one another. 
So imagine how this would work in the United States of America if every 25 or 50 years, to remember our independence from Great Britain, we had a year of amnesty. No income tax. All debts are canceled. We release prisoners from the prisons. What would that do to our culture? What would it do to our economy? This is a radical text to preach on. Now, there is actually no historical record that they ever did that in Israel, just as we have yet to do that in this country, but it stirs the imagination a little bit about what is possible. My guess is, as these humble folks up in Galilee heard these familiar words from Isaiah, they were saying to themselves, isn't that lovely? Oh, he always reads so well. Well, now, that that is Mary and Joseph's son up there. I, I can tell just by the way he acts, by the way he stands. Some just close their eyes and let the beauty of the words and the comfort of the images roll over them. It, it just felt so good and so right. But Jesus says something very curious to them. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, through the lens of Christianity, some 2,000 years later, we, probably, we most likely interpret that he was claiming to be the Messiah, the Anointed One, to come and fulfill these promises. It's a pretty bold claim to make. A little chutzpah to get up in your hometown and say that you're the Messiah. Maybe even a little arrogant. Or maybe what he was saying to them, that actually it's on the hearers to fulfill these promises. Today this scripture is fulfilled, dot, 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 when you start living it. He doesn't say that, but I wonder if the inference we're supposed to make that when will you start preaching and living this good news? And then he starts getting provocative in a way that really offends them, and this part is really hard to understand with all the layers of history and culture and what the original Greek says, but let me give you just a simple gloss. He says to them, surely you will quote to me, physician, heal yourself. In other words, surely you'll say, preacher, practice what you preach. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown all those signs and wonders, those great things we heard in Capernaum. We really want to see your bag of tricks. And then he says, let me tell you something. I'm saying I'm a prophet here today. And if you remember, our former prophets, Elijah and Elisha, didn't do it for the hometown people. They actually did it to the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. These were people outside the fold. They weren't Jews. They weren't the chosen ones. They weren't inside our group. They weren't the people we're familiar with or the people we associate. They were the people outside, the outcast, the other. That's who these prophets went to first. In some ways, he's just holding up a mirror to them with the scripture and saying, look at this truth. And then I want you to examine your own pettiness, your own prejudice, your own fear and shame, your own willingness and eagerness to get ahead at any cost, to stay comfortable where you are. And what do they do? They chase him to the edge of the cliff. Now, I'm guessing there were also some conversations going on like, I, I never knew he had that in him. Lance said, can you believe what an offensive young upstart? What were they teaching him over in that household? In my last church, I preached on this text a sermon called Offending the Congregation. And I asked them, what would it take for you to run me to the edge of the cliff? And I have to say, 
I, I, uh, I said to them, you know, when I preach about social justice and kind of give you what I consider a boilerplate sermon on social justice, you actually applaud. You're all excited to hear the words that are familiar that you want to hear. But when I sit in council meeting and ask if our, if our staff is being equitably paid, or I'm saying that the gospel might compel us to give a three-month paid leave of maternity leave for our receptionist, then I get a little pushback. I also imagine if Jesus were my seminarian and he had preached this sermon, I might have sat him down the next day and said, now, why do you think you got the reaction you got? And Jesus would probably answer, because I provoked them. And how do you think that went, Jesus? I think it went just about as the way it should go. To which I might probe a little bit further, uh, do you think you were as pastoral as you needed to be with your hometown folks? Perhaps they needed a gentler touch. And my guess is that Jesus would say, no, I know these people. I think that's the kind of push they needed. To which I would put in the end of the review, is reticent to receive constructive feedback and probing. (laughs) I assure you that's not the case with our seminarian. (laughs) That's why I encourage you to read that sermon, or our associate, or hopefully not with me, the same results. But it's a good question to ask is, what are we trying to do in a sermon? There's an old aphorism many of you know, that in preaching and in worship, we are trying to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. So I want to turn it over to you. I want to hear a little bit about what you need in a sermon and how you know if you got it. I recently, as I mentioned last week, and as you're about to hear in a moment, had my five-year review, and there are many good feedback things about preaching in this place, namely my preaching, and some of it has brought conversations about, very helpful conversations, because I have to say, standing up here, we don't always know what each person needs, and we're keenly aware that every sermon is heard as differently as there are people in the pews. It's very common that people come up to you and say, I love it when you said such and such, and you know you didn't say such and such at all. (laughs) So I'd love to hear those who are willing just to a few responses here of what you need or want in a sermon, choir or folks here. Yes, Merle. I want uh, inspiration to go out and do God's works. Excellent. Thank you, Merle. Yes, Barbara. You want to hear? You want to hear a prayer from me containing the wow factor. Amen. Well, I do want to be comforted, um, and I want to feel like um, I have the ability to go forward in either my life or to do social justice and do those together. But the strength to do that. Uh, does want the comfort to give her the strength to go out and do the kind of work she needs to do in the world, the social justice work. Yes. Inspiration to be my best self. Lovely. Inspiration to be her best self. Dot. Yes, Betty. To know that God loves me no matter what. Amen. To know that God loves you no matter what. Yes, Ben. 
Well, I, I just think that there's a difference between want and need. So wanting comfort and reassurance and maybe needing to be pushed. And Great balance. A tricky balance. Yes, Jamie. To think about how to explain God's word to children. How to explain God's word to children. We had this conversation about 15 months ago at our all-parish retreat, and some of the things I remember from that are people like images they can keep in mind. One person I remember said, if I'm still thinking about the sermon on Thursday, I know it was a good sermon. Keep me thinking about how to live my life. One of the people who wrote in the five-year review sat down with me this past week and said, I want to see my life in a bigger frame, the frame of the history of faith and other people. Anyone else and what you need from a sermon? Yes, David. Well, it's kind of been said before, but I do like to be challenged and comforted. <laughs> how do you like to be challenged and how do you like to be comforted? Challenged to be a better person um, and challenged for us to be a better church. Comfort kind of speaks for itself. Like Amen. Yes, Carrie. It's kind of the same thing you just said, a little bit different, like a reframe, not just of the biblical story, but a way of like taking a reframe on my day-to-day life, a different perspective. Amen. Yes. I like some context that I might not have myself, like when um, Wilson gave his sermon a couple weeks ago, um, about the book of Ruth and like what it meant historically at the time for the people in it because I might not know about that society and then how it's been interpreted like through the, through the ages. Great. One of the metaphors I think about whenever preparing sermons is that it's like a meal. Several years ago, someone on some sort of online blog posed the question, do we even need sermons anymore? And some man wrote in and said, I've been married to the same woman for 40 years. And almost every day after I get home from work, she has a meal ready for me. It's a very traditional relationship, apparently, uh, old-fashioned. Some may say, I'll be careful with my words there. But he said, I can't remember every single meal. But some were spectacular, some were mediocre, but all nourished me. The question I have is, what is that good news, or what is that reframing that preachers need to offer? So, I didn't ask the question how you know if you received it, but I'm going to move on here just for the sake of time, and I want you to think about what is the sermon you need to preach? As Gwen said, to receive the comfort I need so I can go out and do the work that's needed. To give you an idea of what this may look like, they say that some preachers only have one sermon in them, and they preach it over and over again, maybe one or three. And I was thinking about what are the sermons I find that I'm constantly preaching here to you. One of them, which you already heard today, is that we're still practicing Christianity all this time later. We still gather here. We could be Buddhists. We could be Zoroastrians. We could be Sunday morning, read the paper in bed, atheists. But we're here on Sunday morning and what does that mean to us, and what does it compel us to do? I have another sermon that I often preach, is that I think we only have two fundamentals in this faith, and they're not the virgin birth, or the bodily resurrection, or the inerrancy of Scripture. They are to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. 
One that you're going to hear next week is that we need to be challenged a little bit more to share our faith with other people. Or another is that I believe very clearly in my heart and soul that the gospel is, by its very nature, liberal-minded and progressively oriented. It's a gospel of love, a gospel of the heart, a gospel not of capitalism or empire, and in fact, very hard to reconcile with those two systems. And that God needs us to focus more on our humanity than our divisions. So I'm wondering if any of you came up with something about the sermon that you need to preach and how and where you need to preach it. Let me get Betty first, and I'll come to Valencia. That if God loves me, then I need to love all of his creation. Amen. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> Valencia, I'm coming to you, but I'm going to Deb first here. I would say um, I think mine changes from time to time, but my lately one is just the sense that with God, things that we think we can't do, we can do. Like things are possible with God's help that you would never think are possible. Can I get an amen? Thank you, Demi. Well, patience might be one of them, but um, forgiveness and not just that, but Letting it go after you forgive people. You know, people say they forgive you, but then at some point in the future, somehow it creeps back in that way. Amen. Anne. Um, I, I think that I want to have the courage to preach what I really believe Christ would have us preach, even if it's unpopular. And so having that courage to, to, that God is pushing me to say that, whatever it is. Amen. Come over to Mekela here. Can I get an amen on Anne? I think a message of inclusion is important when we leave the church and be non-judgmental. Um, not a, you know, just everyone is part of God's love, and um, no one is. There's no, there are no exceptions. Um, I would preach that um, to have enough faith in God to let it be. I just, and then I think I would ask for the, um, to understand when you are, it's up to you. You know, you have to turn it to God and then take responsibility. What's yours? Amen. Can I get an amen? Stefan. I was going to say the, um, the value of faith, um, what it means to me and how it plays an effect on my life and uh, the freedom of forgiveness. Amen. Okay, say it. One more sermon from Valencia. She's got two sermons in her.
So getting permission before you preach so that people can actually hear what you have to preach. Okay, you're all signed up for the next six weeks, so we look forward to having you. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm actually pleasantly surprised to hear how many sermons we have in the congregation, and I know we have many more. This story ends with Jesus walking through the midst of the crowd, easily, simply, and Luke keeps us hanging there with them on the cliff wondering what happened next. Jesus goes on next to Capernaum where he preaches and heals other people. This is part of our calling to do. We know the hill that Jesus would eventually climb to, and that's where his earthly ministry stopped and ours begins. We are a priesthood of all believers. We are a preaching establishment of all believers. Let us go forth and share the good news and let the people say, Amen.